Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada. On today's program, we'll finish our first week in the Book of Ruth with a message entitled, A Lesson on How to Spot the Kind Providence of God. So let's turn now to Ruth chapter 1, verse 22, to chapter 2, verse 3, with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld. Ruth chapter 1, verse 22 reads as follows. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Imagine that the first few days after Naomi returned to Bethlehem were difficult days. There was no job, there was no certainty, no safety net. But in the kind providence of God, the two women arrived at the beginning of the barley harvest. Food was in abundance. According to the oldest known calendar we have of ancient Palestine, barley harvest happened between April and May. Then after the harvest was done, a few weeks later, the wheat harvest would begin. And so this little sentence in the end of the first chapter of Ruth signals us to notice that the two women arrived in Bethlehem at the very best possible time. But the availability of food certainly would not mean that their problems were taken care of. At the end of the book, we do hear that there is a parcel of land that belonged to Elimelech, but did Naomi have access to it? It would seem not. I think the logical conclusion to come to was that Elimelech sold it before they left to Moab. I'll come back to that. But even if he had not. In the Old Testament, the land would go from father to son, and if there was no son, it would go to the daughter. We can't be sure of what access Naomi had to this piece of land, since she was the wife and not the daughter. But regardless of the status of the land that was there, or who was presently farming it, one thing's clear. It is harvest time and not planting time, and Naomi and Ruth are without any means of supporting themselves in the midst of a land of abundance. I remember when I asked my father-in-law-to-be if I could have his daughter's hand in marriage. I remember he was quiet, and then he asked me how I was going to financially take care of his daughter. Well, I was planning years of higher education, so I simply said, well, I'm sure that the Lord is going to provide. I remember his response. He looked long and hard at me and simply said, uh-huh. I could tell he wanted a better answer than the one I'd given him. You know, Martin Luther, I think, said the matter quite well. He said, if God does not bless, not one hair, not a solitary wisp of straw would grow, but there would be an end of everything. Now, that's true. Everything is dependent upon God, everything. And so rightly, we wait on him. But Luther went on, and I quote, at the same time, God wants me to have this attitude. I would have nothing whatever if I did not plow and sow. God does not want to have success come without work, and yet I am not to achieve it by my work. He does not want me to sit at home, to loaf around, to commit matters to God, and to wait until a fried chicken flies into my mouth. <laughs> I've always liked that, and this is the key. God will supply. Paul says in Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Yet at the same time, the very same man, the Apostle Paul, in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 10 says, If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. And so Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem without any visible means of support. They're among the poor in the land. Now it is true, they can count on God's kind providence. But they must also roll up their sleeves and find work, lest they starve to death. Now, it is true that Naomi and Ruth have arrived at a wonderful time, and I notice that as I read the text, Naomi makes absolutely no provision as to what the two women should do. It's up to Ruth to take the initiative, and it's not even her culture. 
Now, perhaps Naomi is waiting for a fried chicken to fly into their mouths, or perhaps, as we've seen, she is far too embittered in spirit to be able to address the issue. And besides, she believes that God is sovereign, but the hand of the Lord has gone out against her. She insists that the women of Bethlehem no longer call her Naomi, meaning pleasant, but that they call her Mara, meaning bitter. She can't see beyond her poverty, beyond her losses, and beyond the bitter disappointments of life. But, and it's at this point in the narrative, we are given a statement that changes everything. Indeed, we wonder why Naomi never made mention of this one fact. Ruth chapter 2 verse 1 says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. That one line changes everything. Naomi was not without resources at all. In spite of her bitterness and her complaint that she had returned to Bethlehem empty, it turns out not to be true. Now here's something Naomi wasn't thinking about. She wasn't thinking about what she had, about the resources that God in his providence had given her, for she was thinking about what she didn't have. And Boaz is called here a relative. The importance of that is going to be seen in just a moment. But he's also called a worthy man. In the Hebrew, the word is hayil. The term is for a worthy man, probably a decorated war hero, and that he was a man of wealth, and that he had a reputation for being upright, a righteous man who lived in an unrighteous environment. That was Naomi's blessing, but she didn't see it. And so she said nothing of the matter to Ruth, not one word of how they should survive or what resources they had. And so Ruth does not berate Naomi. Ruth is completely aware of Naomi's mental and spiritual condition, and she, believing in both the love and the sovereignty of God, Ruth seizes the initiative and takes the leadership. Ruth chapter 2, verse 2 says, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Please understand that what Ruth is proposing would probably hardly ever be done in our culture. Imagine saying at the time of the harvest, I'm going to show up in a farmer's field and just go right behind the harvesters and pick up anything they drop, put it into a basket, scurry off their field and take it home. Now, that might happen in our country. I'm just not aware of how often that would happen. But in the Bible, this sort of thing was not only allowed, the Bible went further. Let me read to it from Leviticus 19, verses 9 to 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edges, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. In other words, every farmer in the Bible was instructed to leave leftovers behind. Don't be too efficient in taking your entire crop, for what is left over is for the poor and for the aliens, for foreigners who have no land at all. This is an example of the Bible's concern for justice for the poor. It was a duty of every single person who had much to leave some of the blessings for those who had nothing. Proverbs 19, verse 17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. But this didn't mean that the poor got a handout. Rather, it meant that if the poor were willing to work, they would be able to survive. You know, when I read this stuff, I'm reminded not just how God's heart is concerned for the poor, but also how we are to have the same concern. 
Allow me for a moment to speak to the matter of how the Bible's concern for the issues of poverty and the responsibility of God's people to care for them is worked out throughout the Old Testament. Let's start with Genesis 12, verse 3, which is a part of the covenant that God made with Abraham, the father of the Hebrew people. Genesis 12, verse 3 says to Abraham, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so God would not only bless the children of Abraham, he would bless them so well that the overflow of their blessings were to fall on to others. Now that theme of an overflow falling on to others is played out in the rest of the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 22, verses 25 to 27 says, If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is the only covering, and it is cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Furthermore, The Bible made use of a provision which was called a year of Jubilee. This year to be celebrated every 50th year was the year in which all debts were to be canceled, and whoever had sold property, it was to be returned to them. And so this is how this was to work out. You never actually sold property. You kind of lease it out, in which you would purchase it for a number of set years, and then it would be returned. This would ensure that those who made huge financial mistakes would have a kind of a reset button, by which, by grace, they might begin again. All of this went in favor of Naomi. It was the provision God had placed in the law for her. But we need to remember that this is a story of something that happened when the judges ruled in Israel's dark ages. It's doubtful whether Israel treated the poor with the same regard that the Lord gave them in Scripture. But as we have seen, there was at least one righteous man in that place. And he's a landowner, but Naomi hasn't even mentioned him to Ruth. Naomi isn't looking for solutions, but Ruth is. She believes that because God is good, there will be a solution. So she rolls up her sleeves. Now let's read Ruth chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she went out. Ruth knows this is the law of God in Israel, and she is motivated to seize her right, and as an alien to grab this law. She might be a Moabite widow with no means of support, but she is determined to grab hold of that which God has provided for her. When we come back, we will see from Ruth how any one of us can move from bitterness to joy and learn how we can spot or recognize the kind providence of God. Today we've come to see the stark contrast in the way that Naomi and Ruth individually chose to respond when faced with difficult circumstances. From Ruth's example, we see that she not only believed in what God was doing, but she didn't just sit idly by. She was a woman who took action. When we return, Dr. Neufeld will show us some of the concrete principles that all of us can take and apply from her story. What a great privilege to encourage people in their walk with Jesus every day. And we don't take your support in making this happen for granted. Thank you for stepping up every day. And please continue to support us with your prayers and gifts through the month of August that can often bring some unique financial challenges. Help sustain the ministry through the summer months. We'd love to hear from you, so call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425 
or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. I see a huge contrast between Naomi and Ruth. Look, Naomi isn't the only person who has suffered. So has Ruth. Ruth also has stood beside the gravesite of her dead husband. And unlike Naomi, Ruth wasn't a member of God's chosen people. She doesn't have a family in the area of Bethlehem as Naomi does. She's not accepted as Naomi was. Don't think she hasn't suffered. She has as well. But what makes her so different is she looks around and seizes the opportunities God has given her. Her reaction to the crisis in her life is a model on how to spot or recognize the kind providence of God. So what can her life teach us? Let me suggest four things. First of all, seize God-appointed opportunities. You know, there are some people who go through crises, and when they do, they simply collapse in a heap of bitterness and do nothing. And they can tell you why they are like this. They will say, well, I don't have the resources others have, or well, I have everything taken from me, or well, I've been treated so badly, and well, I don't have any opportunities. And they collapse in a heap of bitterness doing nothing. Ruth, and I don't know how she did it, but she learned about God's plan for justice for the poor and the alien or the foreigner, and she reckoned she fit into both of those categories, and she would take advantage of the opportunity that she had. And how about you? Can you seize God's opportunities that he has given you? Are you taking note? And by the way, if you view God as only sovereign and not mercifully sovereign, you'll remain a bitter man or woman. But if you see loving providence everywhere you go, you will be in a place to begin to look for what he and his providence has provided for you. Open your eyes, look, and seize God-appointed opportunities with thankfulness. Secondly, Be confident of God's design. Let's read Ruth chapter 2, verse 3. Remember, Ruth has taken initiative and seized her right as a poor alien to go gleaning in another person's field. Now, verse 3 reads, So she set out and went and gleaned in the field that belonged to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Yes, that is the relative of Naomi. And yes, that's the man of integrity and moral character that we've just mentioned. Now, Samuel, who is writing this, knows the end of the story. He knows that God has in mind, through Ruth, to bring King David into the world. And we know at this time in history that God also had in mind that, through Ruth, Jesus, the Savior of the world, would be born. This entire story is one of God's providence at work, that every detail in this story, including Elimelech's move to Moab, would serve to bring salvation to the world. That's what makes verse 3 a funny verse, if you think about it. She happened to come to a part of the field belonging to Boaz. Of all things, how fluky is that? Now, Samuel, if he is the author of the book, knows this wasn't random at all. This was God's providence, his gracious sovereignty at work. This is how it happened. In that day, there were no stone fences between fields. Everything would have been wide open, so you couldn't tell unless you examined the boundary stones at the edge of a field who belonged to what. So all Ruth would have done is, at random, picked out one of the group of reapers and walked behind them, looked to pick up fallen stalks of grain that had been left behind, hoping they, in graciousness, would drop enough to let her feed herself and her mother-in-law. And it just happened that she ended up in the field of Boaz. Imagine that. I'm reminded of 1 Kings 22, the day that wicked King Ahab died. A prophet came forward before the battle and told him that he would die in that battle. 
And so Ahab then disguised himself and did not enter into the fray of the battle. So he was safe, right? And then 1 Kings 22 verse 34 says, But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Fluky shot, right? Not when you consider that this fluky shot fulfilled prophecy. It is only then that you get the point. What seems random to us is not random at all, for God is sovereign. He actually directs every single arrow on the battlefield. And although Ruth was not aware of it, he directed her eyesight and the direction of her feet into the field of the man she had heard absolutely nothing about until that point. We can be confident about God's design, and in Ruth, that is exactly what Samuel wanted to communicate, what seemed like just a happening, Ruth just happening to show up in Boaz's field, God preparing Israel in the dark ages to bring about a righteous king. How lucky was that, wouldn't you say? Oh, how I wish that you and I could grasp the idea of providence, that God controls all things, and that for us who believe, he is in control of all things in our joys and in our sufferings. God is loving. His control is a control of grace, of love, of kindness, of mercy. And if you saw that, you wouldn't say, oh, God, I wish I had a wife, or I wish I wasn't so ugly, or I, I wish I wasn't so empty, or I, I wish that horrible things that happened to me just hadn't happened. But with that you begin to look for and hold out the idea of providence. Someone might say, Pastor, how do I get there? How can I open my eyes to see God providentially involved in my life every single day? Well, let me try to help with that. I have said that there are four lessons from Ruth about how to recognize God's providence. First, seize God's opportunities. Second, be confident of God's design. Now, here's the third one. Abandon the use of the term luck. Listen to the words of Proverbs 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Just how much sovereignty is there? Down to the details of the throw of the dice. Now, just to be clear, I am not for a moment saying that I understand the meaning of all those incidental events that make up my life or yours. I don't make any decisions in any of my life by casting a dice or flipping a coin because I can't claim I understand what the outcome of those things mean. But if I say to God every day, do you want me to go to work and flip a coin for it? I'm relatively certain of two things. One, I won't go to work half the time. I'm sure of that. And secondly, I'm sure that God is not asking me to flip a coin whether or not I should go to work. You see, some of us are frozen by the question, what does God want me to do? This is what he wants you to do. Seize the opportunities before you out of love for God and let God direct your steps. But having said that, I have come to believe that there are no accidents. There is no luck. There are no simple happenings. I've come to abandon the use of the term luck and have tried to root it out of my vocabulary entirely. You'll never hear me wishing you good luck, for I actually believe in sovereignty, which is the exact opposite of luck. I wish God's people grace or blessings or favor. I never wish them luck because luck has the idea of random happen chance events. But God is in all things in life. And in this way, I've been training myself to see the providential hand of God everywhere I go. And so seize God's opportunities. Be confident of God's design. Abandon a belief in luckiness. And finally, 
believe the long term will always prove God's love for you in your life. I probably won't understand what God was doing in most events in my life, at least not now. But I'm convinced that God uses his sovereign care over me for my long-term good. I will grasp it by faith, and I will never let it go. No matter what happens, God means it for good. Satan may attempt it for evil. It may feel like the world is collapsing around me, but I know and will never stop believing that God is gracious, that in the end, this will be seen as love, not luck, not punishment, but love. It was G.N. Clark, past president of Cambridge University, who said, there is no secret and no plan in history to be discovered. And against that horrible view, I lay the words of Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Take hold of those promises and let those promises guide you in the most difficult experiences of life. Thanks, John. This has been a great week of ministry uh, through the Word, and I really enjoyed that last passage you mentioned in Jeremiah 29, one of my favorite scripture references. Uh, But as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, many of us, we get frozen in time in some respects because we're seeking out the thing that God wants us to do, and we don't want to make a mistake, and so we end up doing nothing. How do we resolve that for ourselves? You know, the whole idea is, what if I make a wrong move that wasn't in the will of God? You know, what will happen to me then? And my response always is, I mean, how weak is God actually? I think that we should act in a way that's for his glory as best as we know how, make decisions boldly, and God in his mercy will always direct us through those decision-making processes. Uh, I've been telling you, Ben, that I actually knew a woman who uh, wouldn't even buy a jug of milk without saying, Lord, which one do you want me to take? And my response to that is, take the one that has the best due date. I mean, just grab one. And, uh, but it's that kind of paralysis that sometimes people have around the sovereignty of God that we seek to alleviate. What a great reminder. Let me just mention Jeremiah 29, 11 again. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Join us again next week for more of Back to the Bible Canada. When God calls us to follow Him, He never meant that our life would be free of suffering. In fact, on the contrary, Jesus promised that we would experience trials in this life. But from our study of Ruth so far, I think we're learning what it means to build our lives around knowing that God is sovereign in the midst of suffering and hardship. Join us next week as we continue in our study, The Book of Ruth, with Dr. John Newfeld. Okay, this can be an awkward topic, but I think it's worth the risk. You see, I believe God's people have a responsibility to be great stewards of all He's given us. So here I go. It's about planning for the future. If the question of your estate has never been discussed, maybe you haven't had the opportunity to do so with someone you trust. Then I want to recommend Advisors with Purpose. This group of professionals is committed to ensuring your wishes are facilitated and planned for the maximum benefit to your family or organizations you believe in. Advisors is a third-party organization that has performed this service with integrity and excellence for thousands of people across Canada. 
and it's a service they're now offering for free to our listening audience. No cost, no obligation, and completely confidential. So for more information or to sign up for a free phone seminar coming this October, call advisors at one 866 336-3315. That's 1-866-336-3315. Or check out their website at advisorswithpurpose.ca.